don't know, Cheshvan is, the technical name for Cheshvan is Mar Cheshvan. And there's an old etymology, it's, it's actually not historically true, but, but it's a famous word that is said that Mar means bitter. And this is called the bitter month of Cheshvan because there are no Yomim Tovim in this month. And after all of the Yomim Tovim, we kind of uh, get depressed a little bit. But in many ways, Cheshvan is the most important month because Cheshvan is ordinary life, is regular life, not special. And the real test of whether we've grown from the Yomtev is how we apply it in the everyday. And therefore, Cheshvan is the great litmus test of whether the Yom Tovim have changed us in permanent ways. So this month is a very, very important month in that way. According to some Makoros, some, not all, the third Beis Hamikdash specifically is going to be built in the otherwise uh, unknown month of Cheshvan, that this will actually be the month of Binyan Beis Hamikdash. That's some sources, not, not all sources, yeah. Two questions on that. We were actually discussing them on Shabbos. And I was saying that in every single Hebrew month, there's one thing about Moshiach. Like, yep. this is the month that Moshiach was born, this is the month that Moshiach was That's right, that's right. So, like, I mean... So that's what, oh, thank you. Well, that's what I told you. Cheshvan is the, is the, according to some, the month of the Binyan Beis Hamikdash. So these are different opinions that say different months have different holy it's, 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 it's hard to know. In other words, it's very, very difficult. You can't reconcile every statement of Chazal, meaning there are many, many different statements. There are many different views. Uh, first of all, Nisan, which is Pesach, and Sukkot, which is Tishrei are the two Iker periods of redemption. On the other hand, Mashiach can, of course, come every day. And then we throw in Cheshvan. You know, so uh, it's very, very hard to make everything consistent. Chazal had many, many different uh, opinions, and we don't really know how to line all of them up in that, uh, in that uh, way. Okay, so I think last thing we talked about, and I think uh, for some reason the guy who was recording thought I was in bad taste. I don't know, but okay, I hope not. Uh, we were talking about marriage ceremony, and uh, it's your fault that you brought up all sorts of stuff about sexual relations, and that guy, the guy, got the guy very upset. But uh, whatever, he told me next time I should talk about another topic. But really, it's none of his business, frankly. And uh, you can bring up anything you want to bring up. I, I don't mind any any questions at all. So don't worry, don't worry about him. Uh, but he was a little he was a little upset uh, about. Uh, the frankness of our discussion. So he like gave you feedback. Well, no, well, he, he did. Yeah, no, I mean, I didn't was get. He I didn't. No, he was videoing. No, he was videoing. Then he just said, "Next time I should talk. Next time I should talk about another topic." <laughs> All right, whatever, whatever. Um, but we do not, we do not censor you in any in any way. Uh, but uh, but maybe he was right. He was going out to the public. Okay, whatever. All right. Anyway, so uh, what I tried to do last, uh, last time, although we branched out into a lot of other things, is I wanted to take you through the structure of a Jewish wedding ceremony. Uh, and once again, I need to remind you of a distinction that sometimes people have difficulty in grasping between what is necessary for the validity of a marriage versus what is necessary for the permissibility of a marriage. Permissibility and validity are two different things. For example, if I were to give a woman a ring in front of kosher witnesses and say, behold, you are betrothed to me, and she agrees, and we didn't do a ketubah, that is a forbidden thing. I'm not allowed 
to marry a woman without a ksuba. It's a sin, and I have to get a ksuba. But the marriage is still a valid marriage, so even if I didn't do a ksuba, we would still need a get. That is called a valid marriage, although it's a sinful marriage. Another example, if a Kohen marries a divorced woman, or a Kohen marries a woman who converted, that is a sin, that is a prohibited marriage, but it is valid. By valid, I mean to say they would need a get. She can't just walk away, right? So sometimes a, well, let me put it this way. Any marriage that is permitted is by definition valid, but you can have a valid marriage that is still an impermissible marriage. On the other hand, if a Jew marries a non-Jew, whether it's man or the woman, that is invalid. That is a zero marriage. There's no need for a get. Uh, there's nothing. Just walk away. And, of course, incest is the same thing. If a brother marries a sister, even if they didn't know they were brother and sister, that is... In fact, invalid marriage is the same thing as saying no marriage. In fact, maybe it's even confusing to call it an invalid marriage. And when I use the word invalid marriage, I mean there is no marriage, even if legally... Right, legally, right, if a Cohen in the United States, if a Cohen married a divorcee, you know, if it's a legal marriage, they would have to get a civil divorce. But as far as halacha, that's a zero. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. I, I don't know, that, that's a good marriage. I meant to say if, uh, if a, a Jew married a non-Jew. If a Jew married a non-Jew, uh, that could be a civil marriage, but halachically, that is a zero marriage, okay? So again, that's uh, sometimes, for some reason, I, I, I see that, I notice that people have difficulty grasping it, but it's a fairly clear distinction that you need to know. So a ketubah is necessary to make a marriage permissible, but the marriage is valid even without a, a ketubah. Uh, now, why, why, why is there a requirement of a ketubah? So Chazal say, the sages basically say, that a ketubah was supposed to be a deterrent against hasty divorce because if the man knows that when he divorces his wife he will have to pay her a divorce settlement that will cause him to think twice before he takes such action but that is the reason in the Talmud for the institution of a of a kasuba. now what does a oh, I'm sorry yeah. do we fully um, keep the ketubah stuff? okay so first so I'm going to talk about that right now so now what I want to talk about very briefly is what does a ketubah say? And then, do people bother with it today? Do people even, even follow it in any, in any particular way? So first, the ketubah is not written in Hebrew. It is written in Aramaic. So, since I see you have a Gemara there, so I'm sure all of you know Aramaic uh, very well. Uh, if you want to... Do you, you, like, you like Gemara, by the way? It's interesting, because it's, uh, it's still comparatively rare in the Orthodox world for women to, to learn Gemara. So uh, my note is, is a pathbreaker in that as, as in so many other other ways, but I hope, uh, hope you are enjoying it. The Rebbe, in fact, was encouraging uh, of it. Uh, but be it as it may, if you have any problems with Aramaic, so the, the only people who are native speakers of Aramaic today are some Christian villages in Syria. So get yourself up to Syria. Any problems of uh, what that word in Gemara means, uh, they can tell you. And I think some of the Kurds, 
which are also up there. I'm also familiar with, uh, with Aramaic. Aramaic is not Arabic, obviously. It's two different, two different languages. Okay, so the Ketubah is written in Aramaic. And sometimes, I'll tell you, it's, it's such a funny thing, the Ketubah is really a very legal document. So sometimes I've seen a Ketubah in Aramaic, and side by side they have a translation in English, and the English translation has absolutely nothing to do with the Aramaic. The Aramaic says, in the, in the event of death or divorce, I'll pay a certain amount of money. The English will say, I promise to love and cherish you uh, all of my life, kind of romantic uh, thing. The Ketubah is not a romantic document. The Ketubah is really, it's really the earliest prenuptial agreement that we have, right? It's a prenuptial, or maybe a, a nuptial agreement. And it provides a few things. There are actually several things in the Ketubah. Number one, the husband assumes the obligations of marriage that the Torah puts upon him. Now, what are the obligations of marriage? There are three basic obligations of marriage. Number one, uh, he will provide his wife. He will support his wife. That means with food, uh, a place to live, and that is not quantified, really. It simply has a general statement in accordance with the standards of Jewish husbands. So it doesn't really give any particular amounts, uh, but the three obligations are essentially food, clothing, and shelter. That's one. And marital intimacy. Marital intimacy is indeed uh, an obligation. Wait, is house, clothing, and shelter one? No, no, the first one is, is food, which is uh, physical. Uh, the second one is clothing and residence. And the third uh, is marital intimacy. So these are indeed obligations. And uh, in terms of how much support must a man give a woman, it's interesting. The Talmud has a rule that she goes up with him and she does not go down with him, meaning to say the following. If she came from a home where she was supported at a high standard, she has the right to demand that standard from her husband, even if he's not living at that standard. If, on the other hand, she comes from a lower standard and she marries a rich guy, he has to support her based on his standard. Now, obviously, if she marries a poor guy and she knows he can't afford it, she can waive that part of the ketubah, but as a general rule, she must be supported in the manner to which she is accustomed. Now, this itself, the ketubah doesn't really talk about it, as I say, it just says, in accordance with what Jewish men do. That's all it says about that. But this does raise a lot of questions. You know, in the modern home today, number one, in the religious world, very often, the man is not supporting the wife at all. The wife is supporting the man. Number two, uh, even if you don't have a kolel situation where the man is like learning and the woman is working, typically you do have a two-income family. That's very, very common uh, that both people are working. Sometimes the wife might make more than the husband. Sometimes the husband makes more than the wife. But sometimes you can have a situation where husband is a struggling artist and wife is a doctor or a lawyer or, or whatever it would be. And there's all sorts of issues about this. So I just want to mention the halacha very, very briefly. As a general rule, 
if the husband is providing the wife with her full support, he is entitled to her wages. That's kind of the trade-off. If he is supporting her and paying all of the bills, he gets her paycheck. If, on the other hand, he is not supporting and paying all the bills, she keeps her paycheck, and the decision, this is very important, is her decision, not his decision. So essentially, if a woman would rather have control over her money, she could basically say that, you know, you don't have to support me, I will pay for my own support needs, but I will keep my paycheck. So the woman has the right to demand full support in exchange for giving him control over her check, or she has the right to have full control over her check and not have a support claim. It is her decision, not his. Now, this is the theory. In the real world of marriage, that is not how it works. Because in the real life, there's a famous saying, the road to hell is paved with many, with paved with many laws. Meaning, if you start following the halachos in a marriage, that's already a bad sign. Generally speaking, in a good marriage, people share everything. Uh, so if they trust each other, which they should, hopefully, money goes into a joint bank account. And uh, in a good marriage, money should not be, I mean, people may be concerned about money, but money should not be a point of tension. It's my money, your money. That's a bit of a recipe for failure. So. One thing that you need to understand is the way money is actually handled in a good religious marriage is not necessarily according to the halachic structure. The halachic structure is a minimum kind of basis that if things are tough, the woman has the right to her paycheck if she waives support. But in a good marriage, that's not the way it works. In a good marriage, they share. Uh, and generally speaking, a husband is not supposed to uh, really supervise too much. Of course, you know the famous, maybe I shouldn't say it to, to women's group. Uh, you've heard of uh, Rodney Dangerfield, famous, famous, old famous comedian, not alive anymore. So he used to make jokes about his wife spending all the time. So he said, you know, his wife's credit card was stolen the other day, but he didn't want to report it because the charges were less. Uh, okay, I, 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 I apologize. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> But the point basically is that I, I know myself, I have too many people coming to me with stories about how the husband monitors and the husband doesn't let the woman have you know, $5 in her, in her wallet. That is abuse. That is a form of abuse. That type of control is not religiously proper at all. And even if he doesn't hit her, you know, abuse can take other forms besides physical abuse. So be very, be very, very careful about this, that, that neither party should be overly controlling about the other, the other. Okay. Uh, so that's kind of the money issue. Okay. Yeah. There's not any situation where if a wife is paying all of, meaning the wife can choose to declare financial independence or be his dependent. Yep. There's no situation in which he can be her dependent. Like if he's the struggling artist and she is the doctor, so she can handle all the bills and then he can like, give her the, I don't know, $2 that he makes. And she, no. Yeah, yeah, that's, 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 a, that's a very good point, but as far as I know, that's not the case. And the, the most she can do is claim her earnings. She, she never has a claim on his earnings. If she claims her earnings, yeah. can that uh, 
put it very bluntly, screw him over. Like, I mean, what if he is a struggling artist and she says, you know what, I keep my paycheck and I pay. Like, she's, is she obligated to take care of him a lot So that's, it. that's very, very interesting. What? In terms, in terms of a marriage obligation, she is never obligated to take care of him. But what's interesting is there may be a tzedakah obligation. That if, in other words, when you have a person that's in your family, that's in your family, and they are not able to make it, so the same way you would give tzedakah to a sibling or to a parent, then kal v'chomer, how much more so, you give tzedakah to your spouse. So essentially, so essentially, her husband would be a recipient of her of her charity. It would not be a. That just falls under his obligation. That's correct. No, no, no. That, that's, a, that's a very good question. Uh, that's a very good question. Now, the Talmud says the following. I'll tell you what the Talmud, the Talmud says that anybody, if you, have, if you support your parents and you take it out of your Maser money, that is considered to be a curse. You support your parents out of your own your money, you don't, you don't use Dukkah money. Now, the, the Talmud says it only by a parent. I believe. Vis-a-vis a husband, you are, the woman is free to use her 10% of nicer to support her husband. So now again, again, I, I, want to, I want to emphasize that healthy marriages don't function on this level. It's important to understand, <laughs> it's important to under, to understand that uh, because sometimes, and I think men maybe are prone to it more than women, sometimes men learn about all of these laws and then they seek to enforce these halachos in an ongoing marriage, which is a very, very disruptive thing to do. Uh, now, this also means by implication, since initially the duty of support is from the husband to the wife, if a wife has agreed to let her husband learn and she'll be the breadwinner, she has agreed to contribute to money, she is doing her husband a favor. This is not something to which he's entitled. And that means a kolal husband has to be extraordinarily grateful to his wife for doing something she's not obligated to do. And at any time, she has the right to change her mind and go back to the original plan of the husband supporting. So that's the first part of the ketubah, uh, in which the husband assumes the marital obligations of a Jewish husband. Now, in truth, this is interesting, in truth, that part of the ketubah is superfluous, actually. Because even without a ketubah, the marriage itself obligates him to do all of that. So, in a sense, the ketubah is not creating an obligation. It is just stating what his obligation is. You see what I'm saying? In other words, even without the ketubah, he has to do all of those things. Okay. Now, the next thing the ketubah does is it provides a financial settlement in the event of his death or her or, or they're getting divorced. Death or divorce. And here, the financial settlement is quantified. But in the standard Ashkenazi ketubah, I'll talk about Sephardic ketubahs in a moment, it's quantified in a very strange amount by a coin that has not been used for 2,000 years. And that is, the husband, or the husband's estate, if he dies, agrees to pay the woman 200 zuz. Now, 
you're familiar with the Zuz, right? That's the famous Chad Badger song at the end of the Pesach Seder. Now we can figure out what a Zuz is. A Zuz will only, uh, right? Two Zuzim will get you a goat. <laughs> and therefore 200 Zuzim, 200 Zuzim will get you 100 goats. Right? So, <laughs> right? So, now, what, 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 what is... Uh, okay. How do you spell that? Well, Zuz is Zion, Vav Zion, Z-U-Z, Zuz. Well, Zuzim is the plural, but, but, but we often use the singular. Uh, it says... Zion, Zion, Vav, Zion. Zion, Vav, Zion. And then Yud, final mem. Zuzim is the plural. Now, uh, it's a very strange thing that the Ketubah uses a defunct currency. There is no currency in the world today that's a Zuz. The Zuz was a Roman coin that was used in Talmudic times by, in the Roman Empire and by the Jewish community. But here is how we calculate. So how do you figure out? So what is a Zuz and what is 200 Zuz? Right? Meaning, how do you convert it to dollars or shekel or, or whatever, whatever it would be? So Basically, it works this way. We look at the silver weight of, of Azuz, and then we simply say, you have to give the monetary equivalent of what that amount of silver would cost today. In other words, what you're doing is you're taking a currency and you're converting it into its weight in silver, and then you convert the weight of silver into the dollar Amount, which means, the, yes, yes. So, so I'll tell you exactly. Now let's take. Let me let me take an analogy here just to show you how we figure this out. Pigeon Aben, right? Everyone knows what Pigeon Aben is. Pigeon Aben is you have a, a boy, your firstborn, a child, is a boy, not a cesarean. So the boy has to be redeemed by what are called five selaim, and a sela is another coin that would be four Zuzim. So five Salaim is 20 Zuzim. Okay, you got that? And Chazanish says 20 Zuzim equals 100 grams of silver. He has proof, proof of this. Who said this? Chazanish was a great uh, kind of the definitive authority on this. So let's go with, now again, Chazanish died in 1954. So 20... So, so, so again, if 20 Zuz equals 100 grams of silver. So 200 zuz is 1,000 grams of silver. So it's as if to say, when a man says, in the event I die or divorce you, I owe you 200 zuz, that's like saying, I owe you the value of 1,000 grams of silver whatever that is on the date of the death or the divorce. Now, silver does fluctuate. Silver does fluctuate. It can go anywhere between $5 a gram. As you see, it's not a lot of money. $5 a gram to, to $100 a gram. Uh, but let's pick something in between. five. Let, let's imagine it would be $20 a gram. But you have to check. So 1,000 grams is only 20000 Dollars. And if you go with $5 a gram, which sometimes that is, 
a ketubah. Now, again, that's not the only, I'm going to mention other amounts. I'm, 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 don't, don't lose your patience because there are several amounts in the ketubah. I'm just going through each amount as it appears. So the 200 zuz is anywhere between 5,000 to 50,000, depending on the dollars. And that is what we'll call the death or divorce benefit. And that is a fluctuating benefit because it will absolutely depend on the market price of silver on the day of the death or the day of the divorce. Okay, now that is the death or divorce benefit. If the woman has been married before, uh, not a virgin, then that amount is halved. Instead of 200 zuz, it is 100 zuz. So instead of 1,000 grams of silver, it is 500 grams of silver, and that will be it. So it is interesting that the ketubah alone, I didn't get to the other amounts yet, is not a huge amount of money. Now, because of this, I want to, about that, I'll, I'll mention Svartam, I have more things to say about that, but yeah. Um, in theory, if you have Accept the get until silver was at a higher price. <laughs> 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 yeah, that, that's a good. Uh, that's a good. That, that, that's a that's a good question about speculating on uh, the price of uh, price of silver. That that is an excellent question. That may be uh, may be a possibility. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the th- part of the theory is that she already had some settlement uh, from the previous husband, so she needs less. Now, let me point out that there is an alternative view of the ketubah. This is a very interesting view. Let me explain this, which is a minority shita. That instead of translating the 200 zuz into silver weight, which would be the grams, they look at it this way. In Talmudic times, 200 zuz was an amount that could support a woman for a whole year. There are proofs of that. So consequently, instead of translating it via silver, you translate it into one year of support. Now that's a very different point. That's not going to be correlated to the price of silver anymore. That will be correlated to a cost of living index for wherever the woman chooses to live. Which would mean, in other words, if a woman lives in New York City, which is expensive, right? People from New York, right? So it is expensive. So maybe she would get, uh, well, still, you get 50,000, 60,000, 80,000, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever it, it would be. So that's a big machloket, what to do with the 200 zuz figure. In other words, 200 zuz is 200 silver coins. That's what it is. There's no question of what it is. But the question is, when you convert it to modern amounts, are you converting it based on the silver weight, or are you converting it based on what a woman would need to live for a year? But in either case, uh, that's going to be halved. Wait, do the Spartan do the year? No, 
know, the, 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 the Svartim do something else. The Svartim actually, put, I'll, I'll get to the Svartim. The Svartim actually put in uh, big amounts. They put in specific amounts. They don't use the Zuz, these old Ashkenazic, you know, these old coins. They put in, you know, a woman knows exactly what she's getting in the field. I'll, I'll, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Now, that is, we'll call that the death or divorce benefit. Yeah. Uh, going back to the half of the price that she's already yeah. been married. Yeah. Well, so then you said she's not a virgin. So if she's not a virgin but she was never married, like is it virginity or marital? Yeah, yeah. So so that's a that's a good question. Uh, it really doesn't fit the explanation that I gave. So I can't can't fool you at all. Uh, and that is uh, it is it is based on, on lack of virginity. So even if the woman was not married and she didn't get the ketubah from the prior husband, the halacha still is that the ketubah is, is halved. And so it doesn't matter if she was with Jews or not Jews. That's correct, that's correct. Uh, the only machlokas is, what if she was with the guy himself? That's an interesting machlokas. <laughs> In other words, they weren't married, they had relations, he then marries her, uh, can he then say, oh, you only get uh, half? So there are some, many opinions. Many opinions, yeah, many opinions say, yeah. Many opinions say that uh, if she's not a virgin because she's with the guy that she actually married, he has to give a full full ketubah. Yeah. Isn't that embarrassing to have on your ketubah? Oh, okay. So, so, so let me digress a little bit. Uh, this, this is actually a very important issue for uh, people who get married, Balik Tshuva, and for rabbis who conduct marriages. Because the text of the ketubah differs depending on virgin, not virgin, and the like. For and, both the and, and, man and woman? No, no, it's, it's only the woman, only the woman's status. The man's status is not. Why and, is the man's status not? Yeah, why is it irrelevant? Um, well, I don't know. I, 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 can't, I can't fully justify it. I mean, the explanation I gave you before will cover some cases. Some cases are because the woman got a ketubah, etc., and therefore, you know, the man, the man didn't get a ketubah from his prior wife. So, in some cases, you can explain it, other cases are harder. But the big issue is this. Uh, so let's, let's imagine a woman's getting married and she had a sexual history. She's not a virgin. Uh, now the ketubah, as you know, is red at the wedding. It's red under the chuppah. So the question is, all right, so a lot of people, a lot of people, a lot of people don't even know, what, you know but, but some people pay attention and some people are, Is it red in Aramaic? They're in Aramaic, yeah. yeah. Oh, so normal understanding. So, so, well, uh, let, let me put it this way. Uh, a lot of people won't understand it. Some people will. So, so let me point out the following idea. This is, this is an important idea. There are, there, are, there are two ways rabbis deal with this. And uh, if it's relevant to anybody, they should talk it over with the rabbi that's going to marry them. One way is you are allowed to write a regular ketubah, including the 200 zuz, as long as the husband agreed to it. In other words, the husband can agree to the ketubah of a virgin, even to a non-virgin, because it's just a contract. If I want to pay more money, I pay more money. So based on that, if the husband agrees, you can actually write the ketubah the same as every other ketubah, and no one will have any idea of it all. The alternative is, you gotta write the ketubah the right way, but when the rabbi reads the ksuva, he either mumbles his speech, or, or if he's very good, he actually, if he remembers it, he can actually say the, say the words virgin, blah, 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 even though he's not reading the actual words that are there. Now, I have to say, in all modesty, 
I have a little bit of a subspecialty. I, I get invited to weddings. I don't even know. I don't even know the chasen or the kala, but they hear that I know how to read a ksuba very fast. So uh, I, often, I often am given the honor of, of mumbling the ketuba under the under the under Wait, the they ask you to do it like someone she's not religion? Yes, yes. So uh, they always ask. Me. Right. I, I mean, I, I, now I haven't got I haven't gotten invitations from total strangers, but you know people I really wouldn't have invited me except for that. You know. So, uh, it's a big honor. It's a big honor to read the ksuba. People just know. Oh, so that's that's the problem. Yes, that's the problem. When I show up, they know there's a problem. Yeah. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. But these are two ways. Meaning, meaning some, some rabbanim will actually write a regular ksuba as long as there's disclosure to the husband. Others will write the ksuba saying she's not a virgin, but they'll read it. Either they'll mumble it or they'll read it as if she's a virgin. But then you got a problem because a lot of people hang up their ketubas. If they're decorative, artistic ketubas, they hang it up. And you know, most people don't necessarily uh, go over and read it or understand it, but some people do. So if there's something in the ketubah that you don't want to have public knowledge, then you know, don't hang it up where people might read it. So these are things to be aware of. And again, hopefully, the idea of not embarrassing people is extremely, extremely important. And, and hopefully, you have a Rav, who is Masadir Kedushin, who conducts the marriage, uh, they will be very, very sensitive uh, to these issues. On the other hand, the downside is, the downside is, unfortunately, that you do have to be open, at least with the, with the rabbi. In other words, that, that unfortunately is maybe an unavoidable uh, cost. Yeah. Someone told me to hide it from your husband. No. That you should, like, hide it from your husband. No, that, that's unfortunately uh, you can't really do. No, I mean like the ketubah itself. Oh, hide the ketubah from your husband? Yeah. Oh, oh no, I'm, so, uh, 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 I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I misunderstood you. No, right. yeah. no but, 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 but every, every, did everyone get my, my point? My point is that uh, if, if a woman is not a virgin, she must tell her like husband, although you don't have to go into detail. Hide, well, okay, let me put it this way. The ketubah is the woman's property, and the woman yeah, has yeah, to right. know where it is at all times. Yeah. And if the ketubah is lost because you've moved, you cannot be under the same roof with your husband, which means kick him out of the house, Already until, you, until you go to a rabbi and rewrite the ketubah. Right? The, ketubah the husband has to leave. Yeah, the husband has to leave. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the wife can kick the husband out of the house until they go to a rabbi and write uh, a new ketubah. Uh, so that is absolutely true. On the other hand, there's no requirement that it be hidden from the husband. So can you just be like, oh, I lost it, and like kick yeah. him out for a week? Yeah, because... Well, you're, oh, ma- you're making up an excuse you mean? What do you mean? You, you didn't yeah, lose Yeah, like, oh, I just want some space. <laughs> like, I lost it for two months. Just take his credit card. Well, well you know... Uh, I mean, I mean, I mean, obviously you're lying. I mean, yes, I, I can't tell you. It's not permitted to lie. Uh, so when you're traveling, so, so a few things. I mean, you don't have to take the ksuba with you, but it has to be in a safe place. Now, some people keep it in the safe deposit box. Other people keep it at home, and they 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 can rely on the fact that probably it's not going to be robbed or, or whatever it is. Um, I believe know. my sister has two because she lost hers and bought a new virgin and then found it. And then found it. Okay. What if? Yeah. All right. Okay. The ketubah, like, God forbid, your house burns down, and I didn't hear you. What? So, God forbid, your house burns down, yes. and the ketubah is gone too. Then, do you still get a kick? Like, where do you live? Does the husband still have to leave until you get a new one? Uh, yeah. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. It makes no. I mean, I mean, it only, it only takes. I mean, it's very quick. You know, you can do a new one very quickly. 
and you need to need a rabbi and two witnesses and fill in the, the form. Uh, it's a little more complicated form for a kasuba that's lost, but okay, but it's fundamentally the same form, and it can be done in an hour, so it doesn't have to be a big deal. Uh, but yes, uh, even if the ksuva is lost for certain, the dog ate it or whatever it would be, uh, you got a problem. So, uh, so if you use your zoos to buy a goat, be, be, be careful the goat doesn't eat the uh, doesn't eat the uh, the ksuva. Yeah. Where does Yeah, this, this was not uh, originally uh, a Jewish custom. For example, the Talmud looked at the Ketubah as a very business-like prenuptial agreement, and there was no concept of artistic and, and the like. But still, I think we, we, we do find from relatively early post-Talmudic times that it was part of the wedding celebration that uh, they would have... Uh, they would have fancy borders on the ketubah and the like. So you can go all the way back to the Cairo Geniza, going back to the uh, year 1000 and, and the like. So decorated ketubahs are pretty old, but uh, they're not halakhically uh, mandated. To some degree, they're even halakhically discouraged a little bit. Uh, well, they're discouraged because sometimes, depending on the calligraphy and the design, the witnesses are not signing. Let's say, let's say you have a shape. They're not directly underneath, so you have to be careful a little bit that the artistic design does not uh, put the witnesses in the wrong place of the of the document and uh, and the like. Isn't it one thing that women are allowed to like? As a yes, yes. As a matter of fact, uh, yeah, that that's hundred percent correct. A woman can 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 be an artist for too, but there's no problem at all. Uh, unlike a Torah, mezuzah, or tefillin. Uh, the ketubah is not a holy document. It does not. In fact, uh, you, can get, you can get plenty of ketubahs online. Not, not decorative, decorative costs money, but you can get a, a plain print ketubah, which is totally kosher. I mean, you, I mean the, there are blanks for the names. I mean, everyone's after filling the names, but the nusach of the ketubah, you can get online, and uh, it's totally kosher. No problem. Yeah. Well, you know, this goes back to the general idea that uh, sometimes the purpose of mitzvot is to elevate the lowliness of a person, to bring him to a higher level of, of kedusha, and consequently, when people are at a higher level of kedusha, they don't need that particular mechanism for elevation. I mean, that would be a kind of a generalized approach. Minion is a very good example. Uh, w- women, as you know, halakhically do not count for a minion. Uh, and many say, because the idea of minion is to rectify the evil congregation of the spies. How many spies came back with a negative report, not having faith in Hashem? Ten. And they are called an evil congregation. So we have to rectify the evil of the congregation by creating a congregation of holiness and goodness. Now women, it is said, did not complain in the faith of the Meraglim. The women had faith in Hashem's promise. So consequently, the idea of having to rectify the lack of faith that the spies and the Jewish people showed, women didn't need to rectify. But that therefore means if they don't need to rectify, they do not participate in that particular institution. So 
I know it may, may, may be a little bit of a counterintuitive idea that being excluded from something can actually be a sign of distinction, but in some ways that's uh, kind of the philosophy of how we understand it. But be it as it may, when it comes to a ketubah, there is absolutely no question a woman can write uh, and draw an artistic ketubah. Okay, now, now I then want to go on. So I, meant, so I mentioned so far two things in the ketubah. One is the assumption of the obligations of a Jewish husband in marriage. So when, like women have have kala classes. Yes. Do men have khatan classes? They absolutely do. One, and they learn half. about what's on the ketubah and, and other stuff. Well, like, like, yes, they should. They should. I mean, I mean, listen, like everything else, the quality of instruction, uh, you know, is not uniform. I mean, kala classes and khatan classes are not uniform in quality, and teachers are not uniform in quality. But a good class for a khatan will explain the obligations of a ketubah, 100%. Uh, that, that should be so. Okay, now, the next thing of the ketubah is actually very, very interesting, and again, Sephardim are going to be very different on this, and it's interesting, and that is, we'll call this return of dowry that the woman brought into the marriage. In the olden days, but even today, women would bring in substantial assets into the marriage. Right? They might bring in clothing, their own clothing, they might bring in a car, they might bring in a house, they might bring in an apartment in Rechavia. Okay? And the halacha basically is, upon death or divorce, she is entitled, now it's interesting, not to the property itself, but this might even be better, she is entitled to the value of the property measured on the date that she brought it in. Now, that's, that's an interesting point. Even if, it's, if it was less than? Less? Yes, yes. So this, this can work to her benefit. Let me give you an example. Uh, a woman gets married, and she brings into the marriage... Now, this is a little, little tricky, because it depends on... She brings into the marriage an apartment in Yerushalayim. On the date of the marriage, the apartment in Yerushalayim is worth half a million dollars. In the third part of the ketubah, the husband is promising his wife that upon his death or his divorcing her, he will pay her five, a half a million dollars. Now, that does mean, even if the apartment goes down in value, he, got, he has to pay her 500000 but that also means if it goes up in value, he gets the benefit of the increase, meaning he takes the risk of depreciation. He takes the risk, he takes the benefit of appreciation. The Aramaic term for this is hakzaras, return of nidunya. Nidunya is Aramaic for dowry, return of dowry, but it's not, again, to be sure you understand this, it is not return of the actual thing. It is the return of the economic value of what she brought in. But, but, here is where Ashkenazin made a decision 
hundreds of years ago that if this decision does not work for a given couple, they need to rewrite the Ketubah. Ashkenazim recognized, and this goes back to the Middle Ages, the 1200s, Ashkenazim recognized that some women were very poor and they didn't bring any dowry in, so they wanted to create a standardized amount. So instead of making it depend on the particular dowry, they put a standard figure. Sorry. Huh? No, Ashkenazi. For, for this. Now, the standard figure is also a use of a defunct currency. But instead of the Zuz, which is a Roman coin, they used a coin that was very common in Germany and Poland. And the Hebrew word for that coin is a Zakuk. And they said, I agree to give uh, her. As, as compensation for her dowry, 200 zakuk of silver. Now, what is a zakuk is a real, real, real complicated thing. Zakuk is, is, is a Hebrew term for a type of European currency, which is long, long defunct. But generally speaking, a zakuk is much more than a zuz. So the zakuk would be close to $100,000, let's, let's say based on silverweight. So we have the 200 Zuz death benefit, which is, could be as little as $5,000. We then have a standardized Medunya of 200 Zakuk, which can be around $100,000. But I want to make the point that if a woman brings in assets that are more than that, she absolutely has the right to put in a higher amount in the ketubah. The purpose of the 200 zakuk is to give women a minimal claim even if they didn't bring in anything. It's kind of, we assume this is the dowry. But if the dowry is more, like the Yerushalayim apartment, she can certainly put it in. Now, again, for a virgin, the 200 zakuk is cut down. I'm sorry, for a non-virgin, the 100, I'm sorry, the 200 zakuk is cut down to 100 zakuk. Well, that's kind of high. But, 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 here's the point. If she actually brought in the dowry, yeah. then whether she's a virgin or not virgin, she can always put in that so amount. only if it wasn't her money. It's only, it's only the guy, right. Now, yeah. You said this is the third part of it again? Yes, the first part are simply the obligations of a husband. Oh, right, okay. The second part is the 200 zuz, which is a death benefit, or divorce benefit. The third is the 200 zakuk, that is based on a guarantee of a return of a dowry. And then the fourth element is called tosephes, this is simply technically optional, but it's part of the standard form. Tosefet, in Hebrew it's Tuf, Vav, Samach, Fei, Tuf. Yeah. No, Zazai, you did a Gimel, Zion, the other way, the other way, yeah. I make that mistake too. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, Vav, after the Fei, just put another Vav. Tosafot. Uh, what the, what the middle ones? Uh, yeah, nidunya, nidunya, nun, 
That's right. Yud Aleph. Yeah, yeah, Yud and Aleph, yeah. Okay. What about Zakuk? Yeah. No, no, Zakuk is the amount. So, so the Nidunya is 200 Zakuk. Zakuk is a Nidunya is dowry. Yeah, yeah. Okay? Again, I'll, I'll go over it quickly uh, when I finish. Yeah. Okay, I'll get to that. That's very important. The Ketubah deals with how do you collect it as well. We'll, 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 talk, we'll talk about that. By the way, I didn't yet address, do we even do, enforce this today? I will get to that. I, I want to just say what the document says. Now, let me just finish the sentence. The fourth component, Tosafot, that's the same word, by the way, right? You're students of Gemara, uh, right? If you open up a page of Gemara, so the commentary on the inner margin is whom? Rashi. Rashi. And what's the name of the commentary on the outer margin? Did you ever discuss that? That's called Tosvos or Tosafos. Same, you know, same thing. That means additional, additional notes, right? Because these are additional notes to Rashi. In the yeshiva world, we, we say we call it Tosvos, but technically it would be Tosafos. Same thing, when we go to a restaurant, right? You order your main course, and then you order either rice or chips. That's Tosafot, right? What are the additional courses that you're ordering, right? So Tosafot just means additional, which means in addition to the obligations of the ketubah, the husband agrees to add an extra amount. So that used to be optional. Today, it's almost like you put a gun to it, you got you got to agree. And the extra amount, interestingly enough, is equal to whatever the Nidunya thing was. So if Nidunya is 200 Zakuk, husband agrees. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting a little mixed up. I, I have to go back and correct something. I have to go back and correct something. The death benefit, death divorce benefit is 200 Zuz. The Nidunya is 100 Zakuk. It's still a the hundred thousand dollars that I mentioned, but it's one hundred zakuk. Wait, what is the dowry? The dowry for what? For the property, the property that the woman brought into the marriage. Is it property? Huh? It's just property. Just property that she brought in. So even if she didn't bring it in, we we assign it that amount. So two hundred zuz, one hundred. Nidunya is one hundred zakuk. Zakuk. Right. And for a, a non-virgin, 50 zakuk. And the tosafot kasuva is equal to the nidunya amount, 100 zakuk for a virgin and 50 zakuk for a non-virgin. So an that's an additional obligation to pay. So that would mean the following. In terms of actual money, actual money, the 200 zoos could be as small as $5,000. The 100 zakuk could be as high as $100,000. And the other tosefet could also be $100,000. So you're dealing with, you know, uh, over, it could be, it could be over $200,000. But again, it depends on silver weights and computations and, and the like. Yeah. If the woman. Um, has a, it brings in a, a lot for marriage, right? Yes. So she's getting the dowry instead of the hundreds of cookies. That's correct. For the additional stuff. 
No, no, no. No, well, she'll get the dowry based on what she brought in. Yeah. But that does not affect the Tosefet will remain what it is. Yeah, yeah. She's not going to get more of a Tosefet because she has more of a dowry. Okay? So these are four parts of the ketubah. One is ongoing obligations of the marriage, which are superfluous, really, because you got to do that anyway. Two is the death or divorce benefit of 200 zuz. Three is dowry. And fourth is tosefet. And fifth, which I'm going to say now, is the enforcement mechanism. And uh, that's, I think, someone asked the question, how do you enforce it? He dies, etc. And it is enforced by creating a lien. Lien is L, an English word, L-I-E-N, a lien or a mortgage on all of his assets, which means to say, even if he dies, the ketubah is halachically a mortgage on his property. Now, this is important, on his property, which would give her the right to go to a Beit Din and have his property liquidated to satisfy the ketubah obligation. Now, you understand there's a problem here? Note, it is his property. The heirs, whether they're her children or her stepchildren from another marriage, makes no difference. The heirs do not personally have to pay the ketubah. It is not a debt of the heirs. They do not have to write the check. It is a lien... Now, they could pay if they don't want the property to be sold, but it's a lien against his property, which means his property can be liquidated to pay her this money unless they write the check. But the problem basically is this. If he does not have enough property to satisfy the ketubah, then she is stuck. Be sure you understand this difference here. When we say a ketubah is collectible after his death, it does not mean it is collectible from the property of his heirs. It means it is collectible from the property of his estate, not from their separate property, which is a problem if he doesn't have it. If he has it, then she could go and have that property liquidated to pay her back unless the heirs write the check. Okay? So there is a problem. Uh, but of course, this is not unique to a ketubah. This, in fact, even legally, even under, even under secular law, if a person dies owing money, if a person dies owing money, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking as a secular lawyer now, you can only collect the debt from the property he left over. Right? You cannot, right? I'm not liable for my father's debt. In other words, uh, the, 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 the bill collector cannot go after me for my father's debts, but the bill collector can go after my father's property after his death for the collection of debt. So the ksuba is really the same situation. This is true halakhically and this is true legally. It's the same situation as any person who dies owing money. It is his property that is collectible for the debt. It is not a personal obligation of the heirs. And the ketubah makes the point that all of my assets are a lien to the ketubah 
even the shirt off my back. That expression actually appears in the Ksuva. Afilu galima dial kaspe, which quite literally means even the shirt on my shoulders. Yeah. So what if there's a will in which a man leaves his all of his existing assets to his children? Does the ketubah override that? The ketubah does override it because the ketubah is a debt. Th- think about this again. I leave a will to anybody, to my children, to a stranger, but the will is a distribution only after all debts are paid. That's the way a will is always construed. So if a person dies owing his wife a ketubah, no distribution under a will can take place until the ketubah debt is satisfied in full. And if that means 100% of the estate has to be liquidated to pay the ketubah, then that's going to be the case. So have there been lawsuits outside of Israel? Well, I'll discuss, I'll I'll get to the enforcement of the I, I, I didn't yet say, do we enforce it today? I'm just trying to go through what the document says. Okay, so everyone understands that the ketubah has five chalakim, Chalak one is a general statement that the husband will... By the way, there's no obligation of the wife in the ketubah. The ketubah is totally the obligation of the husband. There, there is nothing in the ketubah that a wife has to do. He does not have enough property. Well, it's like anyone else. Uh, she's stuck. He owe, you know, they owe her the money, but uh, she can't collect it. Now, again, the five chalakim are, number one, general statement that he will... Uh, follow and uh, treat his wife in accordance with the laws of Moshe and Israel. That includes supporting her, marital intimacy, and the like. Number two, a death or divorce benefit of 200 zuz. Number three, a return of the dowry that she brought in, which Ashkenazim quantified as a minimum, the the 100 zakuk. Number four, tosefet, additional payment, also 100 zakuk. And number five, the creation of a lien that is enforceable against his property uh, after his death in the event that uh, the uh, heirs don't want to pay the ketubah. Again, they don't have to pay, but the property will be liquidated unless they pay. So usually if they want to keep the property, they'll wind up paying. Yeah. So if he dies yeah. and he has, I don't know, 20 bucks of his name, he owes her 200000 right? Yeah. And then the next day, some random relative of his dies, and that relative left in a will that, you know, Johnny so-and-so should get my $200,000 estate. So post-mortem, the, the dead guy acquires enough property to pay off his two bucks. Yep, that, that's, a, that's a very excellent question. That, that is discussed. It is quite possible that even property that a man acquires after his death may be subject to the ketubah lien. That's correct. Okay. There, there is a concept in Judaism that you can inherit property after you die. Let's say, for example, a person dies in the lifetime of his father. And then his father dies, his father dies. So the way it works is the son inherits as a dead man and he then bequeaths it to his sons. That's true. But since it passes through him, even in the grave, that'll make the ketubah grab onto it. Right. Yeah, that, that's correct. That's a very good point. Yeah. So, let's say it's back in the day, 
and you're broke on the shuttle. Huh? Who are you talking about? The husband are or wife? Are you allowed to, I mean, sign a ketubah that promises an amount of money that realistically you're not ever going to possess? Well, you know, listen, uh, you have to be honest. I mean, if a, if a man misrepresents his financial resources, that is fraud, and in fact, that's grounds for annulment. A woman might not even need a get if she was deceived that way. Of course, if she doesn't need a get, she also doesn't get a ketubah. But if she knows, you know, again, as long as she knows, so the husband's making a promise that if I ever have this money, you know, it'll, it'll be here, uh, and, 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 and the like, you know. Uh, now, let me just mention very quickly how Svartim changed things a little bit. And not all Svartim do this, but, but some Svartic Suvas are very different. Yeah? Um, if a woman comes into the marriage and she's in the property, you know, her name is put on the property, like with her husband, but it was never hers, she never earned it, she never owned it, but it was just like her name's point that joins on the property. Yep. When the marriage is being annulled, it's not, she didn't bring that property into the marriage. Okay, very excellent, very excellent question. Um, I'm going to address that. That's a very, very important question, and that'll be why the ketub is typically not enforced today for that reason. I, I, will, I, will, I promise you, Be'ez Hashem, I will, I will get to it. Uh, let me just mention quickly the things you'll hear in a Sephardic ketubah. Is this for enforcement? Huh? I didn't hear you. Is this about what the Sephardic do for enforcement? For everything, yeah. In other words, oh, okay. what Sephardim do for a ketubah. First, l- let, me, let me just remind you, of a major halachic difference between Svartim and Ashkenazim regarding polygamy for a moment. <laughs> and that is, as you know, under the Torah, a man is allowed to marry more than one wife under the Torah. But Ashkenazic Jews, by Ashkenazic Jews I mean from Poland, Russia, Germany, France, England, Ashkenazic Jews are prohibited to marry two wives from the time of a great, great rabbi who was earlier than Rashi, called Rabbeinu Gershom, who his basin made an edict that polygamy is not permitted for Ashkenazic Jews. Now, originally, this goes back to the 10 hundreds, the 10 hundreds. Originally, it was supposed to expire in the Jewish state, the year 5,000. Now, we just have, we're now 5780, so it would have expired 780 years ago, but don't worry, it got renewed, <laughs> so it applies. So Ashkenazim have a ban on polygamy. Svardim, technically, never adopted the ban I mean, very few Svartim have more than one wife, but you know, but they never adopted a formal prohibition against polygamy. And that's why you will find that in Islamic countries until recently, now, now it's very rare, there were actually Yemenite Jews and the like who had uh, more than one wife. In fact, the state of Israel as a secular state prohibits polygamy, but it had a grandfather clause that anyone who came to Israel with more than one wife was allowed to remain married. And there were Yemenites who came to Israel. I don't think they're alive now, but they came to Israel in 1948 and they had more than one wife because that was the practice in Yemen. It was not a common practice anywhere, but in Yemen it was a bit more common. 
Now, because Svardim, in theory, are allowed to have one, more, more than one wife, there's an interesting clause in Svardic Ketubas that do, do not appear in Ashkenazi Ketubas, and that is, fathers-in-law were very concerned that the husbands not marry another woman. So it basically says, in the event that you, you, know, you hereby swear, this is the husband, husband hereby swears that he will not marry another wife, and if he does marry another wife, he will immediately give my, give my daughter a divorce and pay her a million dollars. In other words, sometimes they put that amount in. Because you can have a private agreement. In other words, you can have a private agreement. That's correct. It's like a, to, it's like a tosefet. So, 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 well, uh, yeah, you can add, you can add clauses. So, so one second. Now you understand, an Ashkenazi ketubah does not have to contain a clause like that because Ashkenazim are not allowed to marry other wives anyway. But, so you might call it this way. The Svardim privatized the Rabbeinu Gershom ban, meaning even though they're not subject to the Rabbeinu Gershom ban, they effectively introduced it via a clause in the ketubah. So that's one thing you're, you might hear. What happens if a, in like, in Yemen, what would happen if a man was against this ketubah? If a man did what? If a man goes against this ketubah. Well, well, in, in, Ye- in Yemen, they didn't have, they, one second, they, they started doing this clause only in Israel. I mean, in Yemen, oh. in Yemen they, they had no problem with it. And in other words, what I'm saying is, today, most people think polygamy is not a good thing. So they started putting this clause in the ketubah. Oh. In the Yemenite ketubahs, they didn't put it in. Uh, there was no, what would there was happen no, if a man during yeah. his life? Well, he would have, he would have to divorce his, his first wife. Uh, and the basin would... Uh, and the basin would assess whatever fine or penalty. What if he refuses? Well, it's like anything else. Uh, right. This is part of the lien. Every, any, any amount in the ketubah is part of that lien in which his property can be liquidated. liquidated. Of course, in Yemen, nobody had any property. So, once again, there was no way you could, you could enforce it. Yeah. What did ketubas look like, like, 2,000 years ago? Well, uh, they didn't look that different. I mean, the, the, remember, most of these amounts are old, you know, ancient amounts. So uh, it looked kind of like this. Um, maybe he didn't mention the zakuk because zakuk is a medieval currency. But the zuz was certainly mentioned. And you can get, you can get a book, you know, even online maybe you can get pictures. Uh, you know, there's a, you, have you heard of the Cairo Geniza? This is a famous, famous thing. Uh, in Cairo, Geniza is a place of Seamus where people put away worn out Torahs and books and Svarim. So in Cairo, there was a Geniza that people were throwing things away for a thousand years. It was a room, didn't even have a door, it just had like a mail slot and you would just put things in there. And the thing had a thousand years of all sorts of Svarim. And in the 19th century, a guy who became a very famous conservative rabbi, Salman Shechter, but he was a scholar. He actually got access. He got access to the Cairo Geniza, and they're still finding all sorts of things. Letters from the Rambam, actual you know, letters of the Rambam, different things like that. This is an inexhaustible source, and it's a whole puzzle because these things are disintegrated. Talk about you know jigsaw puzzles. You have fragments. People work full time in this. 
they're matching up fragments of disintegrating letters to try to put them together. So there are all sorts of publications about the Cairo Geniza. So one of the things that we have a lot of is we have a lot of kasubas. A lot of kasubas were put in shamus. I'm not sure why they were put in shamus. Do people get divorced? I mean, a kasuba shouldn't be put in shamus, but apparently they found, huh? And, and actually, you're right. Suva doesn't even have Hashem's name anyway, so uh, there's no particular out. reason. Yeah. You can throw it out, yeah. Um, like, do you need to hold on to like, your get? So, like, what's interesting is a woman doesn't keep her get at all. It's very, very fascinating. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about this. A woman is given a get, she's divorced. The based in immediately takes back the get, they exit, and they put it in the records and the woman is given a letter that says on such and such a day she has received her get, and that's her proof of divorce. A woman does not keep her get at all. Uh, the, the get is always kept by the basin. That, 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 uh, that's the custom. That, again, I mean, halakhically, there's no issue with a woman keeping her get, but that, that's not the custom today. Does she get. have to keep that letter? Well, well, let me put it this way. Uh, she doesn't have to keep that letter, but it's a very, very good idea. Uh, if she wants to date and she wants to get married, uh, she has to prove that she's divorced. So she could tell. Now, if she loses the letter, she could say, "Go." In fact, that's why the basin keeps it. And in a way, it's better for the. We assume the basin, not always. The basin will keep the records better than the person will. So she can always say, "Go to the basin in Detroit, or Yerushalayim, or Chicago," and they will be able to unearth again. But if she has the letter, they could skip the whole. Uh, they could skip that whole whole process. Yeah. Are there rules about giving a get? Like specifically, the man has to hand it to the woman, or does he? Can he just mail it to her? Yeah, we 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 will get to that. We'll talk about the get because uh, we're doing ksuba, Then we'll do get. But the basic idea is, he or his agent, like a representative, representative has to physically give her or her agent to get. So you don't need the husband to physically give it to his wife, but you do need a physical transfer. It could be via an agent that has to be appointed and approved by the basin. So if, for example, a very common situation, if husband is in one country, let's say husband's in the U.S. and wife is in Israel, or vice versa, the husband does not have to fly in or the wife does not have to fly in. But through the rabbinic court, they would have to designate an agent who will physically give the get to her or to her agent. She could make an agent as well. So you can have any, any combination. You can have husband giving it to wife. You can have husband giving it to wife's agent. You can have husband's agent giving it to wife. Or you can have husband's agent giving it to wife's agent. Okay, it could work any of those configurations. But the agency has to go through the basin. The basin has to certify the person as an agent, as a shaliyah, and, and the like. Okay. So now, let me mention others. So that's one difference you'll see in the Sephardic Ketubah, that oath, that solemn oath, that I'm not going to take another wife. I call that the privatization of Rabbeinu Gershom's rule. Second thing you'll see is, you won't see this in every Sephardic Ketubah, but the Svartim are more practical. They don't go with the 200 Zuz or the 100 Zokuk. I mean, why are we using Roman coins? It's really, it is a strange thing. We're using Roman coins, we're using medieval coins. Like, why? So they basically say, 
Let's use modern money. So it might say the 200 zuz is I agree to pay you, you know, $10,000 or 40,000 shekel. And with the zokuk, they'll also make it higher. In other words, you will see specific monetization, so to speak, of the ketubah in which it is converted into real currency, which makes it much easier to know. In other words, uh, in a Sephardic ketubah, uh, at least the woman knows exactly what it is she's entitled to get. Now, the Rabbanut does have a rule. The Rabbanut has a rule. I'm not sure why, that a ketubah cannot be more than a million dollars. Now, obviously, for most people, that makes, you know, <laughs> makes no difference. But, I mean, if I'm, you know, Bill Gates, assuming Bill Gates would be Jewish, mm-hmm. and uh, getting divorced, you know, why can't, why can't my ketubah be uh, $10 million or, or whatever it would be? But the Rabbanut has a rule that you cannot have well, more than a million dollars. Yeah, so I think that doesn't apply to the dowry because if, 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 if she brought in more, yeah. yeah, but we're talking about the amounts that are not dowry. 138,000 millionaires in Israel. Wow. <laughs> well, they used to make an old joke. How do you become a millionaire in Israel? Uh, the answer is come with two million. Uh, but, but, uh, but in truth, in truth, uh, Israel is a startup, startup country. And in truth, people uh, can do can do very well. Actually, uh, I don't know why the rabbinut the rabbinut in Israel made a rule. No, no, no. So the dowry, no, 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 no. So the the dowry, I don't mean the dowry. The dowry is whatever she brought in. But the other amounts, the tosefet, yeah, right, million shekel. Yeah, I'm sorry, not a million dollars, a million shekel. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. A million shekel is only like two hundred and fifty thousand. That's correct. A million shekel. Yeah, not a million dollars. A million shekel. Yeah, which is much less. So all three of them. Yes, the three. Yeah, that, that's correct. Oh, yeah. Why do they say a monetary value? Is it the Beth did in the South, the Sephardi Beth did, whatever people in South Africa, according to the ones in Israel, that they can say, I'll blank statements of how much 200 people are, this is the money, that it's just going to be different? Like, would, not, would it not make more sense for, like, I'm not sure they say to have it in a monetary value to make more sense like, than the weight of gold. Or well, it's, it's, yeah, the problem is that the Zuzim and Zukuk are silver coins, so you can't go with the weight of gold. You have to go with the weight of silver because th- that's what they are. They are silver coins. So, uh, oh, no, no. So, so I, I mean, listen, obviously, I don't mean to suggest every individual rabbi decides what these is. Uh, you know, the rabbi, no, there, there are postcom, there are rabbis who are in charge of giving these decisions and uh, they are accepted as the authorities. Uh, you know, I'm not, I don't mean every individual rabbi just makes up, makes up uh, an amount. Yeah? Um, is it halakhically okay for a man and woman to just decide between themselves that they don't care about any of these amounts and they want the two to say, but like in the event of death or divorce, he buys her a puppy Okay, okay, so this is very, very very important. In terms of waiving, can a woman just say, I don't need ksubas? She can waive everything but the 200 zuz. The 200 zuz, which is the 5,000, that that minimal amount, that has to be there. So she could say, I don't care about dowry, I don't care about tosefet, you know, I don't want anything. 
but they are not allowed to stay married unless there's a 200 Zuz uh, claim in the Ketubah. So that's, now, now, now Lamaisa, let me, let me point out, if she does get divorced or he dies, she can then say, I don't, I don't want it. I mean, she could say then she doesn't want it. But in, in order to be able to stay married, she has to have that right to a Ketubah. Okay? Alrighty. So uh, I know this is a little confusing, but I want you at least to understand what a ketubah is, and uh, I fear it may be a little disappointing because mm-hmm. it is not a romantic document, number one. It does not pledge my love and eternal loyalty, and it doesn't even come up with that much money, although the dowry might be considerable. Is there a kids? Huh? Is there a kids? Is there what? Is there children? Uh, Okay, the ketubah does not, does not increase with children. Now, 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 let me point out the following. Let me now address very briefly the uh, maybe $64,000 question, and that is, when religious people get divorced today, do they do the ketubah? Do they collect these amounts? Does a woman go to Beit Din? Can a woman go to court and collect the ketubah because it's based as, as a contract? So what's interesting is there is no question a woman has the halakhic right to go after, to, to, to enforce this ketubah. That is 100% the case. It is a halakhic right. Not only that, but in some states in the United States, not all states, not only does she have a halakhic right to enforce the ketubah, she even has a legal right to go to a secular court to enforce the ketubah, because the ketubah is considered to be a contract. Now, this is not true in all states, but in New York, which you know, New York is most sympathetic to Orthodox people, because a lot of the judges themselves are Orthodox uh, people. Uh, in New York State, the ketubah is a contract. So, in the state of New York, a woman can go to court and enforce the ketubah, although obviously you'd have to have a psaac as to what do these amounts get converted to, and the like, and translate it. Okay. However, however, in real life, in real life, it is fairly rare, not impossible, it's fairly rare for women to enforce ketubahs, because what usually happens, and this is true in Israel, and it's true in America and every other country, is they make up, through the divorce attorneys, they make up some type of divorce settlement where they divide property 50-50 and and the like. Uh, And particularly if a house is in both of their names, instead of looking at it as a dowry, we simply say they're co-owners and we divide property equally. So usually what happens in the real world and this is even among very, or even among religious Jews, is that they draw up at the end of the marriage, at the end of the marriage, they draw up a divorce settlement called the Chose in Hebrew, it's a settlement, and the settlement says, this settlement shall replace the obligations of the Ketubah, and you're allowed to do that as long as they all agree. What if he dies without a Ah, so if he dies without doing that, then she goes after the ksuba. She, then, 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 that's right, that's where she would do the ksuba. But most of the time, in mo- see, in most divorces, it actually is to a woman's benefit 
to have a separate agreement. I'll give you an example, because you'll notice one thing about the ketubah. The ketubah does not give a divorced woman alimony. It only gives her the 200 zuz and the dowry. Now, the 200 zuz might be alimony for up to a year, right? But typically, in a post-divorce agreement, there'll be alimony or something like that. So, so very, very often, a woman will be mochelet, mochelet. She'll waive the ketubah by a divorce agreement. But she doesn't have to do that. If she wants to enforce the ketubah, she has the absolute right to do so. But I just want to point out, it is fairly uncommon, you need to know this, it is fairly uncommon in the real world that the ketubah is what she is going to collect. Okay? Uh, and that's halakhically okay, because once they're divorced and once he's dead, in other words, I mentioned before, you can't get rid of the ketubah during a marriage. But once they're divorced, they could do any agreement they want in terms of how they want to divide property. Okay? Uh, yeah? You said that everyone's going to agree, like, you're going to waive the ketubah and make it divorce They both have to agree, that's so, but, correct. Like, what if it's more worthless to the man, not like the woman wants to be the ketubah because she won't get as much. Well, the woman, the, the listen, the, man, the man's obligations are the ketubah. So if he does not want to enter an agreement that'll give her more benefit, he does not have to do so. Uh, the only thing is, let me, let me just explain the dynamics here. If he's going to go with the ketubah, she can demand full payment. See, in an agreement, there'll be like installments, I'll pay you over time. If he doesn't want to do the agreement because he'd rather do the ketubah, no, so she can say, okay, that's your right, but you owe, it, you owe it to me now. And if you don't pay me everything now, I'm going to have your house sold. So there's that negotiation. The ketubah might, the ketubah might be less than the divorce settlement, but the thing about the ketubah is it's immediately payable. So the leverage she has to make him come to a settlement is that that way he gets the benefit of an installment. I'm sorry, what do you say? But like it's confusing because like since the like legal court is separate from like Basin, like technically Basin could say you need to sell your house. Yep. But like no one's going to force you to sell. Well, this depends. Uh, in New York, <laughs> where the ketubah is a contract, the secular court will also say you got to sell your house. You see, th th that depends. This is very tricky. Uh, this is where separation of church and state, I mean, th this is a difficult question whether in a secular court uh, the ketubah will be enforceable. Not every state will agree. Some states say, I don't want to get into the American Constitution, that uh, a secular court can't make you pay a ketubah. That's like making you keep Shabbos. <laughs> That's separation of church and state. We can't make people be religious. But in New York, they say the ketubah is not a religious thing. The ketubah is a contract. It happens to be in Aramaic, but it is a contract to pay money. So why can't you enforce it like any other contract? Yeah? But is it not anyway? Like, I'm in principle, like, what a business contract is, and when two people agree on why it's paying, it's not the payment, and they're yeah. you're legally bound to a contract. Okay, so why isn't the ketubah a contract? No, because some states say, again, you know, I mean, I think they're wrong, but some states say, since it is signed as part of a religious ceremony and because it's mandated by Jewish law, if we enforce a ketubah, we are, enforce, we are forcing people to keep Jewish law. I mean, that's the, the opposite argument. 
New York says no. It's a contract for money. You know, it's not. It's not a religious thing per se. Okay. So I hope you understand the ksuba a little bit uh, better. Thank so, uh, but don't don't be too tough on your chassan. Remember that. You are both talking about that. About the, the divorce or death. You, you were like higher. Higher. I was a total too higher. Like, yes. Yes. The only like, thing is, a prenup cannot get rid of the kid. Not a virgin. Yeah. No. Only a. Only after the divorce. Jeez. But if you keep the two hundred, you can have a prenup.